Um, Our second reading this morning comes from uh, Acts chapter 6. I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. I'm going to be reading it in the NIV translation. Hear the word of God. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and we'll give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this privilege to gather this morning as your people. You have seen fit to set aside one day in seven especially uh, for your worship. And so uh, we are here today responding to you, uh, to your call in faith. We pray that you would uh, bless us for our response. We ask that uh, your Holy Spirit will be present in in this sanctuary, uh, in the proclamation of your word. We pray that the same Spirit that inspired these words of Scripture might also illuminate our hearts as we look into these words of scripture, and we pray that we would be a spirit-filled people, and that we would look the way that you want us to look. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So there are a lot of people who are feeling in the doldrums these days, a lot of people who are worn out and a little blue from the never-ending COVID lockdown, and a lot of people who are exhausted and discouraged by the ongoing racial strife in our country. Two big challenges we face right now, a mysterious virus that kills some people, but leaves others without even a sniffle, and a complicated race history that bears deadly fruit for some people, but leaves others untouched. That's what makes the COVID crisis and the current wave of racial tension oddly similar. Both seem to affect different people in different ways, and I think that's part of our problem in coming to grips with these two challenges. If we all felt the same way about them, it's more likely that we'd be of one mind about what to do. Everyone in this country is affected by both of these plagues. With the COVID virus, people are getting sick and dying, and some of us are worried about getting sick and are frustrated with people who seem to be careless about spreading the virus. Others are healthy and are not worried about getting sick, but are frustrated by the isolation. 
by the curtailing of individual liberties, by the economic cost of the shutdown. All of us are affected by the COVID virus one way or another. None of us like it. None of us are happy about it. And it seems we unhappy people have fallen into two camps. And we're not only unhappy with the virus, but we're also unhappy with each other. Okay? A challenge has turned into a conflict. The same thing, of course, can be said about our current racial tensions in this country. No one is happy with the status quo. But in our unhappiness, we are not only unhappy with the way things are, but we're also unhappy with each other. And so the challenge has turned into a conflict. And it's that part, the conflict of being unhappy with each other, that I think we as the church need to keep our eyes on. The church is not in the business of government. The church is not in the business of medicine. But we are in the business of fellowship and relationships. We are in the business of putting the interest of others ahead of our own interest. And we are in the business of loving our neighbors the same way we love ourselves. The COVID crisis and our racial tension have created a lot of fear and frustration. And fear and frustration often give rise to anger and to hatred. And we as a church need to keep our eyes on those things even as public officials and medical professionals keep their eyes on policy and epidemiology. I have a healthy fear of this virus, but I have a greater fear of the hatred and the division that are being caused by it. And so we need to keep a really close guard on our hearts during this time and a really close guard on our tongues during this time. All of the stresses in life are tests of our character. The stresses of life reveal our character. And there is no doubt that this has been the most stressful four months of my life, at least. Now, maybe those who have gone to war have known stresses greater than what we're feeling now in our country. But for the rest of us, this may be the worst, the most trying time of our lives. In trying times, I'd like to suggest three important things to do. Number one, trust God. Believe what the Bible says. God is in control. Even if we're not, God is even in control with what's going on right now. A lot of our frustration comes from not being in control. And not being in control is really hard for some of us who are used to being in control. Not being in control is really hard for some of us who are control freaks. So first, trust God. Second, give grace. Give grace. Give grace to the people around you. Cut people some slack. Everyone is extra stressed out right now, so none of us are on our best behavior. All of us are a little less nice than we usually are. So, second, give grace. And third, receive grace. Some of us have a hard time receiving grace. And we have a hard time receiving grace because we don't like to be in anyone else's debt. We don't like to owe anyone anything If I let you cut me some slack because I'm a little stressed out right now, then I feel like I owe you something in return. But that's okay. 
That's the way it's supposed to be. In the church, we don't keep a record of what is owed. We all remember the famous passage from the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. It says, love does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. We don't keep a record of the bad things that have happened to us. We don't store them up in our minds and let them turn into grudges or resentments. We don't look to settle the score or to get even. But on the other side, we also don't keep a record of the good deeds that we do to others. We don't give expecting something in return. We don't loan money expecting repayment. We don't do good things just because we think that some benefit's going to come back to us. We don't do quid pro quo. That's not the Christian way. And you know why? Because every born-again Christian has received far more than he can ever repay. And out of that abundance of grace that we have received, out of the abundance of forgiveness and blessing that we have been given, we show grace, we forgive, we bless others in the name of Christ. You're allowed to bring your own coffee, by the way. You can't serve it. Just so you know. Scientific studies show that people are happier when they have a cup of coffee in their hands. I don't know how it works, but who am I to argue with science? All of that means that we don't have to worry about what we owe to someone in the church if they've been generous with us. Thank them. Give thanks to God for them. Enjoy the grace that's been shown to you. And let the grace that's been shown to you be a seed that's going to grow up in your life into a harvest of grace that you can give out to other people. In church life, sometimes we give and sometimes we receive. Both of those things are good and all of that is natural in church life. So third, be willing to receive grace. Three little things to do in stressful times. Number one, trust God. Number two, give grace. Number three, receive grace. That's the pre-sermon. Okay, now here starts the real sermon. Our New Testament reading is about the apostles appointing seven deacons to help with the work of the church. And it's almost the exact parallel to the story that we have with Moses appointing 70 elders to help with the work of the nation of Israel. Three things show up in both of these passages. First, the people complain. Second, the leaders identify their essential work. And third, the leaders delegate the non-essential work. First, the complaint. Second, to identify what is essential. And third, to delegate the non-essential. So let's begin with the complaint. The first part of the first verse of chapter 6 in Acts is beautiful. It should be music to all of our ears. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the church was growing. The number of followers of Jesus was increasing day by day. How beautiful is that? 
Isn't that what the church is supposed to be doing all of the time? We are supposed to be always inviting new people into the fellowship, into the body of Christ, into the fold. In June 2017, the HBPC Growth and Expansion Committee had its first meeting. It had been created by the session to meet the needs of our congregation, which was growing at that time. A number, The number of young families with children who had joined the church had reached the point that we were outgrowing our nursery space. We also needed dedicated space for our youth and uh, young people and also room for a second adult Sunday school class. And Valley Christian School, which is always busting at the seams, was looking for flexible space they could share with the church. Growth is a wonderful thing. Growth lifts our spirits. Growth increases our confidence in the future. Everyone loves to be in a church that's bustling with activity and that's filled with the sound of children. But growth brings challenges too. Because growth brings change. And in an historic church like this one, which is constrained by an old and complicated building and that has to live with rigid local regulations, growth can require rearranging and reallocating the space and the resources that we already have. And then the challenge of growth can become a conflict if it's met with intransigence, if it's met with an unwillingness to be flexible. Challenge can turn into conflict. Sometimes not only are we fighting a virus, but we're also fighting each other. Sometimes we're not only fighting the legacy of racism, but we're also fighting each other. Sometimes we're not only fighting the challenges of growth, but we're also fighting each other. Challenges are the difficulties... Let me say this again. Challenges are the difficulties... That our universe and our history present to us. The challenge of climbing a mountain. The challenge of reaching the moon. The challenge of beating a virus. The challenge of overcoming the history of slavery and Jim Crow. But conflicts are the difficulties that we create for ourselves. Conflict over which member of the team gets to choose the path to the summit. Conflict over which company gets the contract for the rockets. Conflict over which strategy to use to stay healthy, prosperous, and free. Conflict over who is to blame and what is to be done about race in America. Challenges are hard, but they're energizing. And all of us love a good challenge, but conflicts are hard and discouraging. No one enjoys conflict. As the early church in Jerusalem grew, they had different constraints than we have here at HVPC. They owned no buildings. They were mostly poor. So when the challenge of growth turned into complaints and conflicts, it wasn't about square footage or about wainscoting or about how many shekels to spend. The conflict was over people not getting what they thought was owed to them. The conflict was over how the apostles were spending their time. 
Acts 6.1 reads, In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Now this is a fascinating verse. It reveals a couple things. First, it shows us that the daily distribution of food to widows was a normal part of the work of the church. Now those folks, of course, lived in a very different economic system than we live in. There were no pensions then. There was no social security. The care of old folks, unable to work for themselves was a family obligation. It was a religious obligation. Under Mosaic law, children were the retirement plan for their parents, Timmy and Jimmy. You got to make a lot of money to take care of your parents, okay? They're expecting this from you. Which is one of the reasons why being childless in those days was such an issue. And beyond family responsibility... There was also a religious responsibility to give money to poor people outside of your family. But for the widows who had become followers of Christ, for many of them, that meant they were cut off from their families. To follow Christ, they had to turn away from their families. And they were cut off from the normal charity that the Jews would have given This, by the way, continues to be a problem today for converts to Christianity. Muslims and Hindus who become Christians find themselves cut off from their families and their communities that once protected them and supported them. And so the church church must become their new family. And so the church must provide for the needy, for the widows who were unable to provide for themselves. This continues to be the work of the church. Another thing this verse tells us is that the early church was not free of racial favoritism. Paul writes famously to the church at Galatia, There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Greek and Jew, slave and free, male and female, those are the ways that the secular world, the lost world, in Paul's time, divides up humanity. But Paul says those distinctions don't mean anything inside the church. We're all one inside the church. All of us are in Christ. But in spite of that ideal, in spite of that being the way that things should be, the reality was that the widows from Israel, the Hebraic widows, were treated better than the widows from Greek-speaking countries, the Hellenistic widows. The foreigners were being overlooked. And so a complaint arose, a complaint that pitted one group against another. In our Old Testament text, it's not one group that's unhappy. Everyone's unhappy. Moses had led the people out of Egypt. And they're remembering, you know, back in Egypt we had free fish. We had cucumbers and melons and leeks and onions and garlic. And now here we are wandering around this desert and we have nothing to eat but this boring manna every day. 
Moses had led the people on the first stage of their freedom, but what they complained about was that they had lost the comforts of the past. If you have ever done anything hard in your life, if you have ever undertaken any challenge which promised to bear fruit in a better future, you had to be willing to give up some of the comforts of the moment. If you've ever gone back to school so you could train for a better career, you had to give up your time. You had to give up your money. You had to give up the easy, comfortable, familiar ways that you had. And you were willing to do it because you had in mind a better future for yourself or for your children. One of the things that keeps us most stuck in the not-so-great present is an unwillingness to do the hard work needed to get up and out of the rut. One of the things that keeps us most stuck in the not-so-great present is an unwillingness to sacrifice the comfort and the familiarity that we already have. How many of us complain about our circumstances but are unwilling to bite the bullet and do what is needed to make a better future possible? The children of Israel, even though they had been rescued from... 400 years of slavery in Egypt complained when they saw just how hard it is to be free. Sure, the Egyptians made us work. Sure, the Egyptians lashed us with whips. Sure, the Egyptians killed our sons. But at least we had free fish and cucumbers. And when God hears the complaint... The Bible tells us his anger was kindled. He was furious. God had something big in mind for those people. God had chosen a people who were nobodies in the eyes of the world. And he chose a people who were despised and downtrodden in Egypt. And he raised them up. And he made them the most important nation on earth. God had huge plans for these people. Plans to bless everyone on earth through them. Plans to give them a name and a land and a legacy that would never be erased. But first, God had to overcome their complaining grumbling spirits. I think there's a lesson in that for all of us today. If God has big plans for us, that doesn't mean it's going to be easy. We will have to sacrifice. We will have to give up some of the comforts and the familiarity of life that we've been living now. But if we do, God will bless us. And God will bless many, many people through us. Amen. So that's the complaint. The complaint the apostles heard, the complaint Moses heard. So what do these leaders do in the face of these complaints from the people they are leading? 
Well, the short answer is they remain focused on what is essential. Our word essential comes from the Latin verb for to be. The Greek philosopher Aristotle distinguished what he called the essential and the accidental characteristics of a thing. The essential characteristics are those characteristics that cannot be changed without that thing ceasing to be what it is. The accidental characteristics are those characteristics that can be changed, but it's still what it is. Let me give you an ordinary example. The essential characteristic of a restaurant is that it is a place that serves food to paying customers. There can be, however, many kinds of restaurants. They can serve many different kinds of food. They can be plain or fancy. They can be indoor or outdoor. All of those things are accidental characteristics of a restaurant. Those are the things that can change, and it still is a restaurant. But every restaurant, to be a restaurant, must be a place that serves food to paying customers. That's what's essential. That cannot change. If a place with tables and chairs serves coffee, but not food, that's not a restaurant. That's a coffee shop. If a place with tables and chairs serves food, but doesn't charge for that food, that's not a restaurant. That's a soup kitchen. What is essential is the heart and the core and the identity of a thing. What is essential is what makes a thing what it is. So what is the essence of the church? What is the essential role of the leaders of the church? The apostles answer this question in verses 2 through 4 of Acts chapter 6. We read, The twelve gathered all the disciples together, and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the Word of God. We will turn this responsibility of serving tables over to the deacons and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. The essence of the church, what makes the church a church, is that it ministers, that it serves the word of God to people. And the essence of the leader of the church is to minister, to serve the word of God to the people. In the early days of the church, in those first early months, the apostles were serving the word of God by preaching every day in the temple courts. And they were also serving food to the tables of the widows in the community every day as well. Seems like the second part they weren't doing such a good job with. And so a complaint arises. And they solved this problem by enlisting seven deacons to serve food so that the apostles could stay focused on the word. The apostles served the word and the deacons served the food. Both are servers... Both bring to people the things that the people need, but the essential work of the apostles is to bring the word and not the food. And that's because the essential work of the church is to bring the word. 
If an organization which calls itself a church stops serving the Word of God, no matter how busy it is, it stops being a church. It loses its essence. Well, pastor, are you saying that it's not important to feed people? No, I'm not saying that. Feeding people's stomachs is important, but feeding people's souls is essential. There are a lot of organizations, both religious and secular, that feed people's stomachs. And they are important, and their work is worthy. But only one organization on planet Earth, an organization that was instituted by Jesus Christ, feeds people's souls. And that's the church. And what feeds people's souls is the Word of God. So the apostles carefully guard their time so that they can do what is essential, to preach the Word of God to people who are dying of hunger for the Word. They create the office of deacon to attend to the physical needs of widows. That's important work. But it is subsidiary to the essential work of the church. It is the presence of the Word of God in regular public worship which makes the corporation called Huntington Valley Presbyterian Church not just any old charity, but a congregation of the Church of Jesus Christ. The Word of God is essential. It was also the Word of God that made the children of Israel into the people and nation that they were. It's what gave them their identity. It's what distinguished them from every nation on earth. And God had given to Moses the responsibility of bringing that Word on a regular basis to the people. And so Moses finds 70 elders to help him with the administrative requirements of organizing a huge number of people living in the desert. But Moses' essential job, we see in Numbers 11, verse 24, Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord. That's his job. Now I want to be 100% clear that while the proclamation of the Word of God is essential To the church, that doesn't mean that the other tasks are unimportant. Bringing food to hungry people is important, and the church should not neglect that work. But let me put it this way. A church that fails to feed the bodies of hungry widows with good food is a lousy church. And God will rebuke that church. But a church that does not feed souls with the word of God simply isn't a church at all. If we take care of our primary essential task, then the secondary and the subsidiary tasks will fall into place. Growth brings challenges. The early church faced the challenge of rapid growth. And that challenge turned into conflict when all of the widows were not being equally cared for. But the apostles knew that their responsibility in that moment of challenge and conflict was to not deviate from their essential job, the preaching of the Word of God. And so they raised up the deacons 
to do the other important work of the church at that time. God is going to bless our church. God is going to bless us as we keep our eyes on what is essential. Notice how our reading from Acts wraps up. The apostles say, we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. Close quote. And then an editorial comment. And so the word of God spread. And the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. The church was growing fast, which created challenge and conflict. But in that moment, in that moment of challenge and in that moment of conflict, the apostles didn't deviate from their essential work, which was preaching the word of God. And because they didn't deviate, the church just kept on increasing rapidly. Growth in this church will cause conflict. And in that moment, we need to not be distracted by attending to the little brush fire. Instead, we need to keep proclaiming the word. I pray that that will be our story here at Huntington Valley. Let us pray. Father God, we honor you and we bless your name and we recognize that you have the words of life. And we thank you that you have, by that word, called us into ministry. We thank you that we're called to minister uh, the word of God to the world around us, a world that is in darkness, a world that needs to be resurrected by your living word. We thank you that we are called to care for people who are around us, including those who are least amongst us. Father God, we pray that we would keep our eye on what is essential and in doing that, serve you and serve others well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.